I'm going to read our scripture for today. It is 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Good morning. This past week's been pretty rough for me physically. If some of you are wondering, like, why does the pastor wear flip-flops so irreverent? I have really bad pain in my feet, so I can't wear shoes, so don't judge me. Um, that's why. So, like, Monday night, I couldn't even sleep because it was so much pain. It felt like an ice pick was in there, and someone was just grinding at my joints. It happens to me every few months. And then I have this cold, and so I talked to my doctor. I had to go in for a chest x-ray and all these meds and all this kind of stuff. And so we're in this topic of suffering, so I was kind of excited because I was like, oh, God, what are you going to show me? This is really awesome. And nothing. It's just, I don't know why my body's going through this stuff. And so that was encouraging, Andrew. Sometimes we just don't know why, right? So let's just pray. And maybe God will show me why in the future. I don't know. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for these scriptures and thank you for your word. Really challenging this morning, not just the topics brought up, what Andrew shared and what your text is also sharing this morning is pretty heady. And so, Lord, I ask that we would stay focused as to what you want to show us. Pray that you would help us to love theology, to love what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a reminder, Peter was writing to this dispersed group of persecuted Christians all through Turkey, really. If you kind of look at, at our very first studies, Bithynia and Cappadocia, Asia, all that was in reference to northern Turkey. And so that's who he was writing to. And he was writing to them about this persecution because they were facing this persecution. And obviously suffering follows that. And so we've been talking about this suffering for righteousness sake, right? We started that last week, and so we move on with it this week. So this morning, we're going to be taking a look at arguably the most difficult text to understand and to explain in all the scriptures. Lucky me, right? Lucky me. I should have had Stefan teach this week. Well, last week, we talked about the heart. We talked about obedience. We talked about attentiveness. And then we talked about study and yet doing all of that with gentleness and respect when we make a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that is in us. And so today we'll focus a lot on the study portion, that fourth portion, because our text requires that of us this morning. And so we're going to have to do some thinking about this stuff. That being said, to think that I'm going to be able to fully explain this, to fully get this understanding of scriptures through me to you would be really arrogant of me, right? Because we're going to explore this, but I can't tell you that I'm going to be able to give you all the explanations of these things. We're going to seek understanding together, but if I can get us out of here with a complete explanation of these texts, then I'm awesome. <laughs> and I can tell you this, 
I am not, right? So not probably going to happen. If it does, praise the Lord, right? Good, good for you. And I can't take credit for that. So we're going to wrestle through this and we're going to use our brains, but let's realize how finite we are. But let's also not get preoccupied by these five verses that it stops our spiritual growth and we just kind of stop right here. Because this may be one of those questions you've stored in your head to ask God when you see him face to face, right? Like my eldest daughter asking the question, asking God why she was given all sisters and no brothers. That's something you have to ask God, honey. I don't know. I don't know that answer. But I can tell you he's not giving you any brothers. Now, unless it's the work of you, Lord. But some of you may read this text and you might think, like, what's the big deal? It makes sense to me. Let's just move on. You are blessed. Move on. Don't camp out here anymore. Just move. Go. Right? But the rest of us simpletons, when we read this, you're like, what? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. This isn't like the golden rule. Right? This isn't like... uh, love each other or do good or something like that. Again, if you are ready to move on from these verses, just go. Just move on and wait for us to catch up to you. But for the rest of us, what in the world is the Bible saying? What is this? In which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. What? What's happening here? This is not just like doing good to one another. Forgive one another. Don't lie. Don't steal. I mean, those stuff, like, oh, yeah, that's cool. It's easy. But what is this? Now, there are three traditional interpretations that are pretty well received amongst most of Christendom. There's actually a ton of interpretations of this text, right? A ton of them. You can go pick up a commentary and they'll probably tell you each different one. But there's three main ones for this text. The first one, that Jesus proclaimed the gospel through Noah, right? At the time of Noah building the ark. That Christ's spirit was speaking through Noah and he was speaking them. That the spirit of Christ was in Noah proclaiming to them the good news. So during that time. So that's one interpretation. A second interpretation is that Jesus literally went to hell and he spoke the good news to those who died in the flood during the time of Noah and the ark. That's a second interpretation. A third interpretation is Jesus literally went to hell to proclaim his victory to all of the fallen angels, right? The spirits instead of the people who died during the flood during Noah's time. So that's a third. So those are the three main ones. There's a ton of other interpretations for this, but these are the three main ones. Now, for those of you who have been congregants here, or who are congregants here, you've agreed to our statement of faith. Have you read it? Because you agree to one of those three things. And in our statement of faith, we believe in and we identify in the doctrinal statements of the Apostles' Creed. And within the Apostles' Creed, there's this phrase that's written, Jesus descended into hell. So when you sign to be a congregant, you sign that, just to let you know. Anyway, and so for me, I don't think it's the first interpretation that I shared that Jesus was speaking in Noah at that time. 
I actually agree with the third interpretation that I shared with you. And here are the reasons why. I'm not just going to tell you that's it and then move on, okay? I'm going to confuse you further first. So here. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And here's another thing. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Jude chapter 1, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So that's why I lean towards that. That's why I landed there. So before the resurrection, the third day, it wasn't that Jesus wasn't doing anything. He was just kind of chilling in the tomb and just like, mm, just waiting for the third day. Just, just two days, one more. Whew. Kind of boring in here. He wasn't doing that, right? He descended into hell. That's pretty exciting. He descended into hell during this time. He proclaimed to the fallen angels his victory, his triumph over them. Like, Sit down, son. <laughs> right? It's like, right? And so he let the spiritual world know about his victory before the resurrection to the world that he was going to announce to the world that he was victorious. So that's just where I've landed. But all, all the main accepted interpretations, they have their own very strong cases to be presented. I can't say, like, oh, those guys are dumb. Like, this is the way. Like, they can all have scriptural references to their thoughts, too. Right? So study it for yourself. You find out for yourself where you want to land, unless you just want to come on my boat. That's cool with me. Let's keep going. What I really want us to focus on this morning is the suffering of Jesus for righteousness' sake. This was Peter's main intent in writing this section. It wasn't for this really difficult text to be like, what? Did Jesus go or did he not go? Did Jesus speak through? No, that's not the main reason. The main reason is for Jesus suffering for righteousness sake. So let's get back to looking at that. Verse 17, let's start there. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, what makes Christians suffering for righteousness sake distinct from any other type of suffering? Here's one. It's from verse 17. It's God's will. And that might be really hard for some of us to hear. Not that your suffering is God's will. You're suffering for righteousness' sake. That's God's will. And here's the second thing. The suffering is totally, completely unjustified. There's no justification for it. Have you ever thought about that? Did Jesus deserve to die? He was sinless, right? He, he didn't deserve that. And so when we suffer as Christians for righteousness' sake, we must know that God is in control, that it's his will. 
That despite what we are going through, that he is Lord, even in our suffering. Even though we don't understand it, and we don't understand what God's doing, or we don't understand his timing, and if we'll even be delivered from this suffering, we have no idea, because a lot of Christians have not, because they've been martyred. But let us not forget that suffering for righteousness' sake is totally unjustified. What's happening to those Christians by ISIS and ISIL, that is not justified. It's not something that they deserve. The suffering for righteousness snake is not something that you deserve. You don't deserve that. And it's the same thing for Jesus' suffering. He did not deserve that. Yes, it was God's will. Totally unjustified. He didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve that suffering. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, Jesus didn't suffer just to suffer. That's not why he did it. He suffered for our sins, to bring us to God. His suffering wasn't for his sins. That's why it's not justified. Because it wasn't for his sins. He was sinless. It was for our sins. And so there were no formal charges against Jesus. And you look back at the whole passion story, and before that, and you look at what was happening there. The criminals hanging next to Jesus knew he was innocent. Right, The centurion who was right there knew he was innocent, and he executed so many people, yet he knew Jesus was innocent. Right, Luke 23. Judas himself knew Jesus was innocent. He goes back, and he tries to return those 30 pieces of silver back. Right, Matthew chapter 27. And so Jesus' suffering was the will of God, and it was totally unjustified. He did not deserve what happened to him. The righteous for the unrighteous. That was grace, but that was injustice. Now you take a look at how many times suffered for sins in verse 18 is there. And it says, once. Once. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Once. Now why did Peter bring this up? It's really important. Because he was trying to tell them, this is different from your Levitical laws, guys. What you guys were used to in the past, it's done. No more Levitical law stuff, right? There wasn't just a once and for all sacrifice made for people's sins back then. And every Jew knew that. Because when the Day of Atonement had come, then there's another sacrifice. Day of Atonement would come again. Another day of sacrifice. So back to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 25 through 28. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would not have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. One time. It was perfect. It doesn't have to do a redo. Right? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away the sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. Jesus Christ's suffering and sacrifice 
was God's will. It's totally unjustified, and it can't be repeated. It's done. One time, done. It was perfect. There's a reason for that. It wasn't justified, but there's a reason. The suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus was not justified. He did not deserve it, but there's a reason behind it. Reconciliation with God. Being reunited with God through repentance and faith in Jesus so that our once broken relationship with God, that that can be mended. And when did this happen? Right at Jesus' death. Right at his death. It wasn't at his resurrection. It wasn't at his ascension. It was right at his death. And so I'm going to use the scriptures to show this to us when this presence of God is experienced by us. Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's when it happened. That's when it happened. When that curtain separating the Holy of Holies within the temple from the rest of the temple, when that was torn in two, that's when it was done. No more sacrifice needed after that point because Jesus was the Lamb of God who cleansed us from all of our sins once and for all. And so the question is, have you received that sacrifice from Jesus? Have you accepted that sacrifice from Jesus? He suffered for you. That's why he suffered. It was for you. So the question for us is, have we faithfully recognized, have we acknowledged that Jesus' suffering and sacrifice was for you. You are the reason why he did this. Because your sin separates you from God. So have you accepted his love for you, that he would die for you so that you can have a relationship with Jesus, so that veil is no longer there. That you can see God face to face. Now back to verse 18 again, and this time let's take a look at that last part of that phrase there, but made alive in the Spirit. Now you notice the word spirit there is lowercase. So this is not speaking of the Holy Spirit. This is speaking of Jesus' nature, right? He had a physical body. He had a spiritual body. So Jesus was body and spirit, just like you and I are body and spirit. So we are made up of body and spirit. Matthew 26, 41. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So you see these two different natures within people. Now, Jesus' body, his flesh, was put to death, but his spirit was alive. He was victorious over death, right? He conquered death. The curtain was torn in two at the death of Jesus, not afterwards, at his death. And so his death granted us access to holy God. Romans chapter 14, verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And one last one, Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. It's Jesus. Jesus who submitted to the will of God, who endured unjustified suffering, who did sacrifice himself so that it never had to be done again, who 
did this for you who has the power over death. Conquered death. And he's not just some influential religious guy in history, as some may want to paint him to be. A relationship with him determines your eternity. And so there is power, there is authority in Jesus, and we'll get to that when we get to verse 22. So let's first look at the other verses here and look at the options that we've been given, the opportunities that we've been given by Jesus. Because without Jesus, you and I don't have options. It is just eternal separation from God. That's essentially hell, right? Being absent the presence of God. You have no other option. That's all you can do. But with Jesus... We've been given options. We've been given an option to reconcile with God, to restore a relationship with God. We've been given opportunity to have this relationship with God here and now and forever. And so Peter illustrates this option, the opportunity, with the story of Noah and the flood and baptism. And so starting in verse 20, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now the salvation experienced by those eight persons in the flood can be a salvation experienced personally by every person here because you have options through Jesus. You have opportunity. God has been extremely patient. He's been extremely long-suffering with us here today in this world, just as he was with folks back in Noah's time. Extremely patient, extremely long-suffering. God is patiently waiting for those husbands who their wives have been praying for them And they've been following Jesus while their husbands have just been totally disinterested in Jesus. God is so patient, listening to those prayers, wanting to have that happen. God is patiently waiting for those kids who have turned away from Jesus and their parents are just patiently praying, waiting for their kids to turn back just like the prodigal son did. God is patiently waiting for your loved ones whom you are praying for to turn to Jesus. It's been over 30 years that I've been praying for my mom. He's so patient. So patient. See, people don't know that God's patience and kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, God was so patient with those in Noah's time, just as he is with our loved ones today. Those who were saved in Noah's time entered the ark. Just like those who will be saved today enter into relationship with Jesus. Now, God used Noah to communicate to the people back then, and everyone was making fun of Noah for building this ark in the middle of nowhere. There's no water around here. Why are you building an ark here, dummy? Ah, what a dummy. What are you doing? This is so stupid. Look at this guy, guys. Look at this guy. And yet, the ark was their way of salvation, and they had to enter it in order to be saved. But people just kind of continued on their way like nothing was going to happen. It was not a big deal, right? And so as Noah continued to build this ark and continued telling people, like, you have to get in here in order to be saved. Otherwise, you guys are going to perish. You're going to die. And all the while, he was just being chastised by all these people who were given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to go. And so they just continued on their merry way, and they're working and sleeping and playing and doing whatever they do and just doing their stuff. And only eight entered into the ark. 
See, you and I are the modern-day Noahs of today. We're telling people to run to Jesus Christ for salvation, that you need to go there. And you and I are being looked at as we're being crazy. You're nuts. Science. Science. Look at science. Look at how this works in the world. When you die, you just die. It's like a computer. You just get turned off. And people are wondering, like, why do you give that much money away? Why do you serve people that you don't know? Why do you waste your time going to church on a Sunday when you can go out here in beautiful Lake Meriden and do whatever else you want to do? Why do you do the things you do as a Christian? That's so foolish. That's just stupid. And there are so many who have heard the gospel. There are so many who have rejected Jesus, even though they know so much of the Bible. And there may be folks who come to church here even and put their Sundays here, but you know what? You're still far away from Jesus. And all of that can change this morning, though, if you cry out to God this morning. Verse 21 here, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, is Peter saying that baptism saves you? I wish. I really do. Wouldn't that be easier? Get you wet. Save. Thanks, bro. Everyone, let's go surfing. Let's go. Baptize all of you, and then, oh, yeah, we did it. You know, we did it. Unfortunately, that's not the case. You look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Meaning, change your mind. Turn from your previous ways of thinking, of your previous ways of doing things, of your previous ways of how your will used to operate. So in repentance, there has to be a change of your will, of your thinking, of your actions. And so Peter told those in Acts to repent and be baptized. Let's continue on with Peter, since Peter's the one that's writing all this stuff. And so we'll look to Peter, Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. No mention of baptism there. Repent. Now, that's not to say that baptism isn't important because it is. right? But that's not what blots out your sins, right? Repentance, turning to God, is what blots out your sin. If saving people from sin was just about baptism, then what are we doing? Well, we just go out there with spray bottles or something. Spray people, and they, but we baptize you. We baptize you. Yes, we're saving everybody. That's awesome. Hey, you need a super soaker. That one's far. Get them. We would be doing that, right? Remember that? I love this scene. It's one of my favorite scenes. Nacho Libre. Remember? They're in the thing. and You've never been baptized? It's like Escaleto's eating a salad, right? He's eating a salad, and he's like, praise the Lord! And he like, dunks his face in there. That's what we should be doing if baptism saves you. Seriously. Why, what are we doing here? I would love that. I would love it. But it's not baptism. So what is it then? If it's not baptism that saves us. Acts chapter 5 verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. That's what it is. Acts chapter 6, verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's what we do. That's what we're doing. 
That's why it's not as easy. Because you tell people this stuff and they think you're nuts. Let's look to 1 Peter about being born again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you skip down to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. It's not the act of baptism that saves you. Which why Peter, I think, attaches these qualifiers to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Right? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not the external act of getting you wet. Something internal is happening. It's what's happening in your conscience as an appeal to God. It's not about getting wet. It is through the resurrection of Jesus that saves you and frees you from sin. Now, we believe in baptism. We believe in baptism. We believe that it is an outwardly portrayal of the salvation that has already happened within you. So, if you haven't been baptized yet, December 6th, and the class is coming up, Lake Temescal. I don't know the temperature. Just do it, though, okay? And if you haven't baptized, go to that baptism class on the 23rd. <laughs> go to that one. And you can learn all about it. And then on December 6th, we'll get baptized. <laughs> now, look at verse 21 again. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal. What does that mean? An appeal. It's an intense desire. It's an intense craving to God for a good conscience. You want that. Which is why during baptism class, during interactions prior to baptism, when you're talking to people and you're asking all these things, and during baptism itself, we ask you questions. We make inquiry of why you're doing what you're doing to understand what you're doing and what you're professing. And if you do, we baptize you. And if you don't understand the questions we're asking you, then we wait. Right? So there are times that we've had people sign up for baptism and they're ready to get baptized and everything. And we ask them these questions. I'm like, I'm sorry, you're not ready. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're professing. You're just kind of grabbing what mommy and daddy told you to say and saying it for yourself. And so baptism is a symbol of loyalty and allegiance to Jesus, which is why we don't baptize children or babies, because they aren't at a place to decide for themselves loyalty or allegiance to Jesus. And so when I have turned people away, most of the time it's children, which I don't want to do because Jesus didn't do that, right? Jesus says, bring the children unto me. But the thing is, it's not my fault that the parents didn't inform them. I'm not taking responsibility for that. It's your fault. Jesus, they did it. They did it. I'll explain it to them, and I'll have these conversations with these kids and say, like, when you are ready, not when mommy and daddy tell you, but when you're ready, I'll be more than happy to do it. I'll even do it multiple times. Just dunk you. Keep dunking you. Then make no difference to me. But it's you saying you're loyal. It's you saying, I have allegiance to Jesus. 
So we baptize those who profess their faith, but that doesn't mean that people become perfect. Right? If you're thinking, like, I'm going to get baptized, and when I get out, I'm going to be a different person. Maybe. But sometimes people get baptized for the wrong reasons. Right? You think like everything is going to change in your life. Look at Simon in Acts chapter 8. That guy was a weasel before he got baptized. Still a weasel when he got out of the water. Just a wet weasel, that's it. He was an otter, I guess. I don't know. And so they use more superstition than it is about the assurance of their own salvation. That superstition is driving them to go into that water. Please don't make me do that. Lake Temescal is not warm this time of year, right? Like, if you're going to do it, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. If it's going to be cold, you better do it for the right reasons. But in less than three weeks, we're going to give an opportunity to people to publicly proclaim their loyalty, their allegiance to Jesus. And you know what? Time is going to tell whether that loyalty and allegiance to Jesus is true. Because sometimes people come up to me and say, hey, didn't that guy just get baptized? How, how come he's doing that now? I don't know. He's a sinner. He's a sinner. But it is a serious decision that you're making in terms of saying, like, my loyalty, my allegiance is to Jesus. And you're making that for yourself. No other superstitious thought about what this thing can or can't do for you. It's profession of my faith. It's assurance of my salvation that I belong to Jesus, so that I'm going to do this. Now, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus just simply went back to where he belonged, right? So his mission was to die for us, and so that was accomplished, and so he went back to his rightful place where angels, authorities, and powers are subject to him. So this is an interesting question. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Is Jesus a man or a God here? Is he flesh or is he spirit? Like, what is he? I think he's a man. He was raised from the dead as a man. So his resurrected body, that was a tangible body. Thomas touched him. People ate with him. People walked with him. He was hanging out with those guys on the Emmaus Road. Hey, buddies, like, what's going on? Like, they knew he was there. And so he was a resurrected man. And his physical body was glorified. It wasn't the same man, but he's a glorified body. And so he is at the right hand of God as a physical man. This is just where I've landed. Again, many different interpretations, but this is where I've landed. We believe in the resurrection of the body, to have glorified bodies that will no longer be corrupted by sin or decay, where our bodies will no longer fail us or cause us suffering, and I'm way looking forward to that. I'm so looking forward to that. So let us keep in mind what is temporary and then what is eternal. That God is sovereign and he allows for different things to happen in this world, like different leaders are placed in the world at certain times, and they're removed whenever he wants to do it according to his will. And this was an important reminder for those in Peter's day because they were suffering for righteousness' sake at the hands of the most powerful government in the world at that time, and they couldn't do anything about it. There's no way to fight the Romans. And so even though everything seemed to be against them, Peter reminds them that it's Jesus who is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Not only in this age, but the one to come. How many of us are truly going through our life here as a sojourner, as an exile, knowing that this age is temporary? Knowing that Jesus is at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, that's our God. That's Jesus. That is who is on your side. See, what a great opportunity we have in Jesus to come to God in repentance so that we are reconciled to holy God. God who desired so much to love us and care for us so dearly. And who else to be subject to than the one who is willing to suffer for us, to die for us, so that our sin would be upon him and our fellowship with God restored. You can trust him. He did that for you. And if you haven't been baptized, but you profess to be a follower of Jesus, what's the holdup? What's the holdup? If you can't make December 6th, we'll make it a different day. We'll just do it here. But there's no holdup. The act of baptism and your profession of faith, they go together. The baptism doesn't save you, but those things go together. And if you profess to be a Christian and you haven't been baptized, December 6th. Okay? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that as we let all of this information percolate, we pray, Lord, that it transforms into life change, that it doesn't just stay as biblical information. And, Lord, that the convictions that we feel here from your Holy Spirit are things that bring us to change, that they aren't just things that just kind of stay with us and then they kind of get diluted and we forget about them later. Father, I ask God that for those who are experiencing suffering, we know that in suffering for righteousness sake that that's your will. And I'm not so sure about just suffering. That you know like these physical pains that I'm experiencing or physical pains that others are experiencing. And like Andrew, we have no idea why nor do we know if we're ever going to get a reason why. But we know that you're a good God. We know that you're in control. And all we can do is plead for mercy from you, God, that you would help us. I believe that would happen. In Jesus' name, amen.